0: Hi, this is Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History and also the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. And before we begin today's interview, I wanted to make a special appeal to everyone who listens to this show and all the shows on the New Books Network to go to our Facebook page and hit the Like button. This is important because the people who support this show need to know that we have an active audience that is, that people actually listen. And since I know people do, I would like you, if you just have a moment, to go over to Facebook and like New Books in History and the New Books Network. Thanks very much. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm very pleased to say that we have Rosamond Bartlett on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, Tolstoy, A Russian Life. I imagine many people who listen to this podcast have read Tolstoy, and particularly his big novels, those being War and Peace and Anna Karenina. I had read them a long time ago, but Honestly, I didn't really know anything about his life. And I think if you, like me, have read those novels, you might have some impression of his life, but not a very accurate one. Tolstoy wrote a lot about himself. Many writers do. But as Rosmond Bartlett points out, there were also a lot of parts of his life he did not write a lot about, or at least not in any direct way. And once you realize that there are these hidden threads that run through his life, you can think about his writing in a new way as... I do now, now that I've read Rosamund's book. Tolstoy was a very peculiar character. He was eccentric. He was an anarchist of a sort. He hated authority. He was also quite needy. He wanted attention. He was arrogant. He was a master of self-fashioning. He went through personalities and selves the way that you and I might go through Suits of clothes, one day he was one person, one day he was the next. And all the while he was worried about who he was. This insecurity comes up again and again, I think, in his life. He did things and then he wondered if they were right. And this pushed him on and it pushed him to really quite extreme action. But interestingly, not extreme in the way that, at least I, have come to view extreme action in the late 19th century and late 19th century. Russia he didn't join a party. He didn't become a communist, really. He didn't become a strident nationalist, although he loved Russia. He just wasn't much of a joiner. He was too much of an anti-authoritarian to do any of that. He did rewrite the Gospels, which tells you a little bit of something about his arrogance. I guess I would say arrogance. I don't know how else to put it. He he was very confident, and he was very unconfident at the same time, which makes his life very, very interesting. And Rosamund I say it does an excellent job of telling us quite a bit about it. And the book is also, I should say, beautifully written. I think that you'll enjoy it if you read it, and I hope you do. And I really enjoyed talking to Rosamund today, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. So without further delay, here it is.
1: Hi, Rosamund. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks.
0: I'm glad to hear that. Today we have Rosamund Bartlett on the show, and we'll be talking about her really wonderful new book, Tolstoy, A Russian Life this is a really terrific biography. For those of you who want to know more about an author whom I'm sure you have read, this would be the book for you. Uh, It is full of incredibly lively material. Of course, Tolstoy's life was incredibly lively, and I have to say, somewhat confusing. It's kind of difficult to get into Tolstoy's head. I think Rosamund does an excellent job of it, but if you're interested in Tolstoy, and you know someone or you know someone who's interested in Tolstoy, I really highly recommend you go out and get this book, because I'm very glad I read it, and I want to thank Rosamund for writing it. Um, Rosamond, why don't you begin this interview by telling us uh, a few words about yourself.
1: Okay. Well, I was born uh, on Hyde Park Corner um, in London, in St George's Hospital, which is now a very smart hotel, which only Russians can afford to patronise. <laughs> my father was uh, a doctor there at the time, and I think there should be some different category for Londoners who are born, you know, in um, in the in the in, in Westminster, because mm-hmm. uh, you get you get a special. Um, sort of moniker, if you're born in the East End, you know, you're, you can be a true cockney. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. So I, I grew up in uh, in Surrey, and I went to a school where there was not one but two Russian teachers. Wow. And I really loved languages from from the beginning, um, probably wasn't much good at anything else, actually. And my father had been to Russia in 1957 to the, you know, the, the youth and festival youth and friendship festival oh, yeah. and um my grandfather in his time who was a, a brilliant historian uh, from from cambridge was a communist that had gone to russia in the 1930s who uh,
0: wasn't who uh, wasn't a communist back? well exactly uh, really
1: and it's it's quite something because i've only got three cousins and uh three of us um Did did Russian degrees, and uh, so I went on (laughs) after doing Russian at school. I actually, I should say, I I did try giving it up after what what uh, we have. we had O levels in mm-hmm. in the late 1970s, uh, and the, the the chap who'd um, come to take our oral exams had actually rung up our headmistress and said, "You've got to get your girls to do A level because no one's doing Russian A level." So I like to sort of think that Russian chose me rather than I chose it. <laughs> One be of the best things in life. Um, but I did actually go to Russia in. 1978, when I was 15, uh-huh. and uh, it was a historic trip. It was my my very prim girls' school from Surrey, and a group of boys from Eton College who actually weren't um, terribly well disciplined, and so it was a fairly riotous trip. And in I fact, I just, it was. I just met up with someone who I'd known, you know, back back then, and quite a lot of people from that trip actually went on to do Russian. Wow. Anyway, I, I went on to do a Russian degree at uh, University of Durham. And I sort of figured, uh, even even back then, that I probably needed to have a year to immerse myself in the language, which, as you know, was not all that easy Mm -mm. back at that point when Mm -mm. it was sort of Soviet Union. And it was a sort of standard three-year degree, uh, unlike the language degrees in the UK. And I managed to inveigle myself into a course in Leningrad for part of the time and then a course in um, in Paris for the rest of the year, which actually, uh, we, you know, it was marvelous fun. But it was also a very important place to be if you wanted to know about mm-hmm. contemporary Russian culture, because there was such a big emigre community there. Yep, yep, yep. And and then I came back for my last year and worked my socks off, and I was. Very fortunate to study under some really marvellous teachers there, actually. I think it was a sort of golden age of, of Russian departments. And, you know, we've seen in the UK uh, a big decline in the number of mm-hmm. uh, of departments, I mean, the department now is beginning to sort of cl- clamber back again. But it's in terms of numbers, it's, you know, it's a shadow of its former self. And it's part of um, the School of Modern Languages, mm-hmm. um, again, which is which is good. But, you know, you get a lot of students just wanting to do the language and not wanting to study the, mm-hmm. the literature. But in particular, I was very fortunate to study with someone um, who has published very important works on, on symbolism. And, uh, that's, um, Avril Sokolov, or mm-hmm. she's known by her pen name, Avril Pyman. And she wrote a two volume biography of Alexander Bloch and taught a wonderful course on the Silver Age. And I'm totally nuts about music. Um, if anything, probably I'm more mad about music than, than Russian and the Silver Age, as we know. I mean, I like to think of it as the golden age of Russian culture Uh, in terms of all the arts. You know, it was was a time when um, when the arts sort of tended to mingle with each other. And so I was absolutely fascinated by that and ended up, I don't know, to my great surprise, doing rather well in my finals. And ended up after that, after a year of working in publishing, going off to Oxford to do a doctorate but mm-hmm. um thinking all the time they were they were going to throw me out <laughs> i wasn't going to be <laughs> up to it I, I never i never planned to be an academic and and you know i'm not one anymore so I, I probably you know was was right about it in some ways but i was also lucky to study in oxford with uh jerry smith who arrived as the new professor of uh, russian in 1986 and he is a formidable jazz musician as well as he's mm, a, wow. a specialist in, in, um, in Russian poetry. And he was very enthusiastic about my topic and was very supportive. And as you know, when you're doing a, a PhD, you know, you need someone <laughs> to be enthusiastic about what you're doing and to just give you some moral support. So, And it's, and
0: it's very unlikely to be your mother. At least in my case. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so I, and I ended up, I, I think it, 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 throughout my, my career, uh, since then, I've ended up taking on these enormous topics. Yeah, you have. <laughs> and, and why not? You know, you only did once. Why, mm-hmm. why
0: not?
1: So uh, I ended up deciding to write uh, a thesis about the influence of Wagner on Russian culture. Wagner, I've heard of him. Yeah, um, and I actually, i never, I mean, I, I, I love music, but I never really got into opera until, um, fairly recently before I became a graduate student. I uh-huh. think, you know, it's an expensive habit, isn't it? It is not it And Wagner too, you know, he's yeah. fairly, um, He's fairly off-putting to the uninitiated. So I actually ended up <laughs> reading his, his prose writings before I listened to his music, which is an unusual way of getting into Wagner. But uh, I, I read his sort of rather turgid uh, essays, you know, Art and Revolution and the Artwork of the Future and Opera and Drama. And this sort of light bulb came on in my head and I realised I'd met all these ideas somewhere else and that was in the writings of of Russian symbolist poets Mm -hmm. and that's what gave me the idea of doing a thesis and of course the more I looked into it I realized there was a big topic there and obviously in in, at that point in the in the 1980s you know we're just about on the verge of glassness here now um it was still you know Wagner was still someone who was rather taboo topic and as you know you know you couldn't really um You couldn't really find much written by Soviet scholars about the influence of a foreign culture on Russian culture. Mm -hmm. And and Wagner was a prescribed figure for all sorts of reasons. So uh, I realized there was something to investigate further. And I got a wonderful opportunity to spend a year in, in Moscow. And I hadn't quite realized quite how much material I would find. And this was 1987, 1988, and it was... That was the height of the Glasnost period, actually, and it was the most exhilarating time, and the archives were opening up. Mm-hmm. And I encountered quite a lot of resistance from archivists who sort of refused to, me- to let me look at their catalogues and things. But, you know, y- you get there in the end. And uh, I was able to work in the Lenin Library and go through the entire run of the Russian Musical Gazette, for example, and mm-hmm. um, just had an- a complete field day. And, of course, I met musicologists who were also uh, able to to talk quite freely uh, from that point of view and uh where well, they were tremendously helpful so I've really benefited from the work of a lot of very senior russian musicologists like Nina Barsova and um Ludmila Kavnatskar in in petersburg and so that was my my thesis <laughs> and then i i ended up teaching in in Michigan, Michigan, um, yes,
0: Michigan, uh, great state of Michigan, just, yes, just north had, of us. Yes, I had a
1: right. wonderful adventure living for a few years in, in America. Uh-huh. But uh, let's leave it at that. Yeah, I made all these wonderful American friends when I was in Oxford, and they they were very inspiring, and they just had so much energy and passion. Uh, and so I, I don't regret living in America, but I got yeah. very homesick for Europe. Mm. And I was teaching everything, of course, in English, mm-hmm. which uh, is a reality in in the state, isn't mm-hmm. it? When you, when you take Russian literature courses, and completely understandable. But I found that I was getting increasingly sort of, you know, distanced from my the the subject I was studying, mm-hmm. and um, uh, so yes, yeah, so I returned to Europe in 1997, um, and. Taught for a while at various places and ended up in two thousand and six actually deciding to um, to go freelance as a as a writer full time writer and translator mm-hmm. uh, my last full time job was at, was at Durham again actually, so I actually returned to um, my alma mater and that that was very nice and I actually lived in the house of my my former mentor <laughs> and, <laughs> wow, that's uh, great. <laughs> and uh, was a uh, a very very interesting artist from Moscow, and their house is like a sort of living museum because it's mm-hmm. sort of covered from top to toe with with his sculptures and his, and his paintings. So that was oh. that was a wonderful experience.
0: It's oh, nice, nice. Come full circle like that. Yeah. You know, you're in very good company leaving academia. I won't well, go into details, but
1: I the the sort of irony, of course, is you leave academia. You can actually be a scholar.
0: Yeah, no, uh, tell me about it. I, you know, again, I, yeah, I, I really shouldn't say anymore because my, uh, I'm currently employed by the, the, the state of Iowa and I love the state of Iowa and I'm very happy with my job. I really am. It's a great job, but I, I know just what you mean about the freedom of not being in that context. Um,
1: well, I, I think for, for people like me particularly, uh, I, I I'm a, you know, someone who trained in Russian language and literature, who wanted wandered off into musicology and then felt that actually it would be nice to work in a music department, but I don't have a music degree. Yeah. And actually the work I do in music anyway is, is sort of musical history, cultural history. So I sort of feel I cross three different departments and it's rather like a... Uh, A polyglot person who, um, you know, speaks lots of languages fluently. I I don't really feel at home in any of them. Right. Uh,
0: Well, this is is one of my hobby horses, actually, so I will go um, on the record a little bit. You know, we talk a lot about interdisciplinary studies, both here at Iowa and all over academia in the English-speaking world. And it's fine to do interdisciplinary studies as long as you don't really do them. Yeah. If you know what well, I mean. I,
1: I do them. And yeah, I, I,
0: I do too. And this was a real frustration for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, and, and, you know, at Durham, it's a wonderful university. And the music department really would have loved me to have contributed to its teaching. Yeah. But I, I was stuck teaching Russian grammar. Right. And it was, yeah, it was just so yeah. depressing. And it, was felt, it felt like I had to sort of cut off a whole half of my personality. And that's actually yeah. quite painful if you can't be the person you're supposed to be.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No. I know just what you mean. We should. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd like to hear more of your thoughts about that. But let's get to um, this particular book, Tolstoy: A Russian Life. How did you come to write this book? Again, this is a, one of these just enormous topics. I see people who pick a, t- take 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 on these topics, and I'm just like, wow, that that just takes a lot of bravery to do that.
1: Okay, it's going to take quite a while to answer.
0: I'm all ears.
1: But it's a it's a good question, and I think the answer's <laughs> okay as well. So I. Wrote up my my Wagner thesis as a book for Cambridge University Press. Um, that was my first major book. And I thought, great, you know, then this is just a chapter of a bigger study, which is the history of opera in Russia. And in 2000, I got a contract with Yale to do the book of the history of opera in Russia. And that's a subject which I'm still very committed to. And um, I also in 2000, got a contract to translate some of Chekhov's stories with Oxford Wilds Classics and I taught Chekhov at Michigan and that had been a really wonderful experience for me and a revelation in many ways. I, and I,
0: I should just tell you, I just love Chekhov.
1: Oh, well, I mean, you, just, you uh, couldn't have said yeah. anything better because yeah. I mean, I love Tolstoy, but Chekhov number one for yeah, me. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Um, I'm glad we agreed on this. Yeah. So I, I, I found what was, what was so interesting about teaching Chekhov? Uh, uh, I mean, I actually, I'm quite open about this. When I was an undergraduate and very immature and superficial about a lot of things, I thought his stories were really boring. (laughs) I I didn't really read them. I mean, I thought his plays were okay. And suddenly, when I was... It appointed to do this job at uh, Michigan. I mean, what an irony. I mm-hmm. was supposed to be teaching che- Chekhov and Tolstoy there, and I'd you know, spent the previous few years working in music history. So it was a real education for me. And what was so wonderful about teaching Chekhov in particular was that, and this is a great um, positive side of, of American education, I got all these students who were doing MFAs in creative writing. And for them... Chakov wasn't a Russian writer. He was just a great writer. Mm-hmm. And that was wonderful. And they were so enthusiastic about him. Mm-hmm. And I learned an awful lot from the discussions we had with them. So it was a very enjoyable experience. And at the same time, I did a big conference on Shostakovich, because we had the Borodin Quartet come mm-hmm. out. And they did a residency, and we had the um, the string quartet cycle over over five days, mm-hmm. and it was a really good time to have a conference. And it was my first year uh, in the job when I when this was presented to me. But it was you know too good an opportunity to miss. And I thought, well, I better give a paper at this conference myself. And I I sort of did a bit of research and came across this statement that Shostakovich made about. Chekhov's story, The Black Monk, being written in sonata form. And that really intrigued me. So I went off and researched that and gave a paper on it and then since, you know, wrote it up as an article. And I must say, I began to sort of think about Chekhov and the translations of Chekhov, because obviously I was teaching using translations and came to see that actually they were often quite defective. I mean, more defective than other um, works by Russian writers and I don't know I just ended up uh, sending off proposals and the last person I wrote to was the editor at Oxford World Classics and I I have huge respect for uh, my predecessor at Oxford World's Classics, uh, Ronald Hingley. Uh, but I, I don't mm, like his yeah, yeah. translations, actually. Yeah, <laughs> but, know, yeah. um, he was a wonderful man. We were, we were we were really quite close at the end of his life. And uh, So I, I thought, well, I can't possibly, you know, publish translations at OUP. But uh, the editor there was was very keen from the start. And so I thought, well, that's great. I've got a book contract to write about opera research and um, the op- history of opera in Russia and another one to do some translation. And then, of course, things <laughs> took a different direction, so I haven't even got to answering your question yet. <laughs> and you've already
0: got three book contracts and no books Okay, done, so, so. so the
1: next thing that happened <laughs> was that I met someone who was about to leave her job as a high art executive at um, OUP and become a literary agent and she was a friend of a friend of mine and we met in, in Blackwell's Cafe and had a coffee. Oh, yeah. She looked, she looked through my CV and said, oh, well, yeah, maybe. And I, and I thought, well, I'll never hear, hear from her again. And. Oddly, she rang me up about a week after we'd met, saying, well, I've met an editor um, who wants a biography of Chekhov. Do you know anyone? And, of course, I just someone besides <laughs> <what> <laughs> <of> me? <laughs> yeah. And even more oddly, the, the, the proposal just seemed to write itself, mm-hmm. and um, it just came out very easily, and I got the contract. And that was in my first year of teaching at Durham, actually. So I, I found myself in the awkward position of having to ask for – a year of unpaid leave straight away yeah. because I knew that I'd never get it done otherwise, right. because it was for the centenary of his death. And that's mm-hmm. why I wanted to do the new translations of, of the Chekhov stories. And I found the whole process of translating Chekhov's prose uh, deeply inspiring for the way I approached structuring his biography and, that's something I'm engaged with with Tolstoy too because I'm also translating Anna Karenina mm. and I did half of Anna Karenina in drafts and then got down to the biography and I, I'm convinced that it had a subtle way an impact on the way I, I wrote wrote my book on Tolstoy so um there's a, there's also um, an odd thing you find in supermarkets in this country if you If you buy one you get one free or yep. if you buy two you get one so I had these two um contracts related to Chekhov and then Penguin, to whom I'd also uh, approached my, with my contract. I'm um, sorry, in, in I'd also approached Penguin with a proposal for t- the translations of the stories, and they said, "Well, we really like your work, but actually, we don't see a market for it anymore, and we've just decided to, you know, stick with our old translator." So they <laughs> said, "Well, actually, how about doing the letters?" So I ended up with these three <laughs> Chekhov books, and you know, I couldn't turn that down either because Chekhov's one of the greatest letter writers who's ever lived, and. Um, and I was just going to have lunch with my editor, um, the editor of the biography in 2004. This is just before the book was about to come out. And my agent said, well, you know he's going to ask, what's your next book? And just the word Tolstoy came into my head. <laughs> and I he knew that Tolstoy's centenary was coming up, but it's not not quite to sort of contrive of that. Because in writing about Chekhov's life, Uh, You can't escape the fact that for Chekhov, Tolstoy was like the number one most important person in his life. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really understand why. I mean, I could see that Tolstoy was deeply important as a writer, but I couldn't quite get what his significance was. And really, I wrote my biography of Tolstoy in order to be able to understand that. And I do understand that now. So that's really good. <laughs> and I also just wanted to get to grips with Tolstoy as a phenomenon. And it, I didn't really understand his latter life. Um, and I could, you know, I could get to grips with him as the author of War and Peace and Anna Karanina. But the, the the sort of last third of his life was actually pretty complicated. And I really wanted to clarify that for myself too, because he was such a, an enormously important figure in, in Russia. Um, and I didn't really feel that that had been brought out enough. Mm-hmm. So that's how I came to write them. <laughs>
0: wow. <laughs> yeah. Was, wow. That's like, like three um, or four book contracts and two or three careers and a literary agent and several moves across the Atlantic ocean. And that's a long story. That was, yeah. Yeah, that was a, That's a, that's a winding path hmm. to a book. Yeah. But
1: I, you never know quite where you're, you know, your life is going to lead and it's quite nice to be able to wow. see how it turns out. Isn't tell, it?
0: tell me about it. I mm. really, um, you know, as I told you in the pre-interview, I've done a lot of these interviews with uh, academics and historians and people who work in literature and thus and such now. And I, I am always pretty surprised about the origins of books. And I think the authors themselves are too. They just don't yeah. really, they, they don't anticipate that they were going to do this and then they end up doing it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's a, it's a terrific story. So let's talk about, uh Lev Nikolaevich a little bit right now, and um, uh, tell us uh, his story sort of from the beginning. Tell us about the context uh, into which he was born.
1: Well, Tolstoy was born into the upper echelons of Russian society. As we know, he was born into the kind of, you know, landed aristocracy, really. I mean, he wasn't one of the most um elite science. Uh, there, were, there were people more distinguished than him. But, you know, he was a count. He was Graf Tolstoy. And admittedly, there are more counts and countesses in Russia because every son and daughter gets mm-hmm. the title. Uh, however he was still you know he was still someone who had a very distinguished pedigree and even when he was you know living like a peasant he was very proud of um his ancestry and he came from two old families and was born you know in the heart of russia in the estate which which was the only place really he could live um, where he found sort of inspiration to write. And that was, you know, Yasna Palyana. Mm -hmm. And that's an estate quite near Tula. Mm -hmm. And these days it takes about, you know, two, two or three hours to get to in a car. And he had the childhood, in some respects, very typical of his class. You know, he had private tutors Uh, what wasn't so typical was that his mother died before he was two and then his father died when he was seven and so the Tolstoy children experienced quite a lot of upheaval um, early on but they had a succession of aunts and um, sort of proxy aunts who fulfilled the role of of mother and so he wasn't wasn't abandoned uh, as, as such but when he was um, in his teens, they, they moved out to Kazan to stay with uh, his, his aunt, uh, Paulina, there. And that's where he went to university. But he was pretty wayward. Uh, and they were an eccentric family. I mean, you know, they weren't... Very establishment Russian aristocrats, and the Tolstoy children were all pretty strange. Uh, <laughs> and this this comes out uh, in in Kazan. I mean, Tolstoy, you know, showed his true colors from an early age. He, he didn't really like the idea of anyone teaching him. You know, he he didn't really like having to submit to any any kind of authority. <laughs> so, uh, he he didn't actually graduate. He he and. I was quite surprised how how mercurial he was as a young man, actually. He would just sort of do things on a whim. Mm -hmm. There was one point when his brother-in-law was going to go off on some trip to Siberia, and Tolstoy thought, oh, I'll just come with you, and he jumped in the carriage. You know, he didn't even put a hat on, (laughs) Um, and he was -hmm. was forever doing crazy things like that. And, um, you know, at university, he thought he'd do Oriental languages, and uh, that was a very good decision at Kazan uh, and David Schimmel von der Oy 's new mm-hmm. book on Ori- Orientalism uh, has a, has wonderful information about Kazan as a center for mm-hmm. uh, Orientalism.
0: We, we interviewed him. We interviewed him.
1: He did. Of course he did. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a, it's a great book. Yeah. Um, and, and then he decided to do law and then he basically um, decided that that was it. And, you know, he came into his inheritance Uh, At the age of twenty-one, and embarked on this sort of um, life of fast living, uh, alternating with with this extraordinary desire to live very ascetically and to live Mm -hmm. a sort of morally pure life. So he
0: he sort of—I'm sorry to interrupt, but he sort of in that period in his life, that kind of those early years between about fifteen and when he came into his inheritance, and maybe a little bit after, remind me of myself a lot. in, In that same period. Especially when, actually, especially when I, like, early 20s when I was in graduate school and I'd make these lists of things to do, like, pick up groceries, do laundry, learn German. You
1: mm. know, you know, like, you
0: know, it's like, so like, you know, like, like these totally unrealistic, no sense of proportion, you know, just like, absolutely, I can do anything. I'll just do yeah. it all, you know. It's like, yeah.
1: But, anyway. but, you know, he did actually achieve quite a lot, didn't he? Yeah, no,
0: he did. Yeah. <laughs> so, where were we? He's uh, just come into his inheritance.
1: Yeah. And so he, he's the one who inherits Yasna Paljana, the sort of ancestral home. And he spends a few years really not knowing what he's going to do with his life. Um, he goes off to St. Petersburg and thinks he's going to finish off his education there and become a diplomat and become a lawyer, go off and fight in the war against Hungary. Uh, and then all the while, you know, he's carousing with gypsies and gambling a lot and um, people are getting very tired of him in his family because he, he writes to them on this regular basis, you know, dear Sergei, you know, I've really turned over a new life, you know, it's going to be really uh, straightforward now and I'm going to, you know, keep my head clean and I'm, I'm going to do this and that and um, Sergei or whoever it is, writes back and said, yeah, yeah, we've had all that before, <laughs> and of course yeah. they had. Um, right, and, and, he's, and-
0: sell- he's selling off Yasnaya Palyana slowly, isn't he? He's going through the money, and
1: he's going through the money. Yeah, yeah. And he was a, a typical Russian landowner from that point of view. They, they were very profligate, and you know they didn't have any responsibilities as such. So yes, he's selling off the old village here and there, and you know not not really treating his peasants particularly well. Although he's actually one of the few who wants to give his serfs uh, their freedom before the Freedom of Emancipation Act in uh, 1861. So. He's got these idealistic um, uh, dreams of of living a uh, living a sort of better better life from the start. I think um, we we make a mistake if we think that all of Tolstoy's sort of religious quest happens only later on. It you know it begins mm-hmm. quite a lot earlier actually. But um, he, he he sort of suddenly makes a decision to go down to the Caucasus with his brother Nikolai in 1851 and ends up joining the army there and that's where he also publishes his first or he writes his first piece of fiction um Mm -hmm. childhood and you know he's right on the the fringes he's you know down in in um in the caucasus and sends off this manuscript to the the leading literary journal of (laughs) the day and um on spec and uh, just signs it ln so he mm-hmm. he hides behind a um, a disguise and it's immediately apparent to everybody that this is um, work of, of great talent and it's published although uh, Tolstoy's furious that um, the editor Niklasov makes changes and the sort of crucial change is to change the title not childhood but my childhood and you know what Tolstoy is famous for is is writing in a way that somehow is universal even though he's writing about mm-hmm. the world of the nineteenth century Russian. Uh so that's a that was a terrible change and he was forever getting very very hot under the collar and sort of drafting furious letters and fortunately he would sort of put the draft aside and, and think better about it uh, you know a day or so so later and so um, he, he he very quickly acquired a a literary reputation Um, probably all the more glamorous in a way that he was serving in the army at the time he wasn't in St. Petersburg and he really came to national attention when he served in Sebastopol in the Crimean War and wrote these dispatches and it was the first time anyone had written even vaguely realistically about contemporary warfare and the first one was rather patriotic, and so it was seen as sort of great um uh, help to the war effort and Alexander the uh, second future Alexander the Second decided it should be translated, so it was very widely distributed. but the experience of war I think was a very crucial one for for tolstoy and it very rapidly turned in, into a pacifist, and you can see that from the two other sketches he wrote in Sebastopol and they uh, were mutilated by the censor as a result mm. so he from a very early point also encountered difficulties with uh, with with censorship and, and of course they would become much more pronounced uh, later on. Uh, and then of course he, he had had enough of warfare particularly when Sebastopol fell and he managed to get leave to go to St. Petersburg and he's sort of on the books as an officer for a year or so after that but really he's, he's a civilian uh, when, he, when he goes to St. Petersburg uh, and that's in, in, uh, in 1855 and he gets to meet all the, the great writers including Turgenev who is in many ways a father figure for Tolstoy because he's 10 years older uh, his sisters met Tegenev and they've become friends, and so he's very connected to Tegenev uh, in, in in different ways. And also, uh, Tegenev is a kind of sort of literary father figure. He's the author of um, mm-hmm. "Zapiski Achotnika," a mm-hmm. uh, uh, Hunter's Notes, and that was a you know very very important um, document with regards to how writers depicted or did not depict peasants and serfs in their in their fiction um and so Tolstoy famously said in his diary you know it's it's hard to write after um Hunter's notes but he was such a prickly character Tolstoy that he soon fell out with everyone in the in the writing world and legged it back to Jasna Pagliana and really he spent the rest of his life um, based at his estate and you know it was it was typical for Russian families to spend their their summer months on the estate and then move back to the city for the for the winter season and Tolstoy didn't really want to have any part of um you know social mm-hmm. he, he was he was very uh, he was very eccentric and people saw him as a rather sort of wild animal um so he went back to astapalyana and decided to start trying to uh in, improve the education of his peasantry and that for me was a really interesting chapter in his life story because think a lot of biographers have skipped over his educational work but um he founded several schools actually in and around uh, yasna palyana and of course he saw that there was no point in introducing technology to russia when they hadn't even got past the sort of first step of education and when he when he tried to talk to his peasants about giving them their freedom. They were so poorly educated. They didn't actually understand that he was working on their behalf. Hmm. And that I think was what, what made him want to become a, a teacher and from the very beginning in an education as well, he he was someone with very different ideas. So he didn't really want to have uh, a typical school with rote learning um, and the excessive use of corporal punishment, which was very, very much rife at that point. So his kids could come and go when they wanted. And it was a very creative setup. And of course, you know, he could afford to do that. So that was a very interesting chapter. And then he... he was also appointed to be an intermediary for the Emancipation Act. And that was when things got a little bit tricky. He was appointed uh, Justice of the Peace then. And the landed gentry people of his class around him were very hostile to his work in education because by tradition they were all deeply conservative and did not want to lose their privileges and didn't see any point in educating peasants they they you know they treated their peasants like cattle and so a lot of the noble neighbors around Tolstoy started writing poison pen letters to him and it really got him down and he was employing Students, because there were quite a lot of disturbances in Moscow and Petersburg in the universities at this time. And that whole atmosphere is wonderfully depicted in Tegenyev's Fathers and Sons, of course. But a lot of the students get expelled if they've been taking part in demonstrations and they can't afford the new fees, um, which is something that English students would probably. (laughs) And so they, they ended up getting jobs with Tolstoy. And the government, of course, identified them with um, subversive political action. And often, you know, they, 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 were, they were accurate in that. And Alexander II sent down some uh, third department officers to come and raid his estate and Tolstoy was away in the in the step recuperating from the stresses of having to deal with all these nasty neighbors he had and um so that was sort of a nail in the coffin for his schools at that point and at the end of that summer he got he got married and of course the next 10 years were a period of great happiness and domestic stability and he wrote war and peace <laughs> the rest is sort of mm-hmm. it really is history isn't it
0: Mm-hmm. But he's skipping, I, I guess he is, he's sort of, I think of this as a period in which he is searching for an identity. He doesn't know who he wants to be. Is that, is that a fair characterization?
1: I think that is very, yeah. he's. I've always felt in his earlier life that you know, he was split between this desire for kind of sort of, dionysian uh, living life to the full existence which bergier talks about in, in his mm-hmm. book the First idea and this sort of um, feeling of wanting to live a pure life and to find the truth and writing for him was it was intimately tied to this religious searching but for a, a while it was it was really a very different kind of lifestyle and this other impulse kept coming up. I think this impulse to actually de- devote himself to, to f- following some kind of religious idea. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, yes, uh, it, it his, his youth and adolescence and early adulthood. He really, yeah, was, was searching around for something that he could, he could be that would satisfy him. And, you know, he was someone with a great deal of impatience and an enormous intellectual curiosity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he needed something that would really absorb him. And, um, so there's the, there were, we see you know, both in his writing, uh, and he's, he starts, you know, writing those famous diaries where he's also searching for himself. I mean, all of his, all of his writing really is a, is a sort of search for himself, isn't it really? Mm-hmm. Um, It's terribly autobiographical, and it's not just the male characters, is it? It's the female Mm. characters, too. I think we can see an awful lot of him. And actually, (laughs) I think we get to know him as a person much better in his fiction than we do actually in his life, because bizarrely as it may sound, I think he's much more inscrutable than someone like Chekhov, who was uh, supposed to be very difficult to decipher Mm -hmm. because he was such a closed person and very, very private. I I found somehow as much easier to get on inside Chekhov's head than, than Tolstoy's. And Mm -hmm. yet in the, in the fiction, I think he is very much more himself.
0: Mm -hmm. It seems to me that he was, a combination an odd contradictory combination of both arrogant and i think that was the legacy of his upbringing cuz uh, uh, our listeners may not know this but the, the nobility when tolstoy was growing up literally owned people um kind of in the fullest I mean, sense
1: we need to underscore that don't yes
0: we? Uh, and so you know he did feel uh that he was uh, 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 the master of his domain, but he was also ridiculously insecure, because he would land on one of these things to do, one of these, I think of those kind of harebrained schemes, they weren't exactly harebrained, but he's like, I'll be a soldier now, or I'll be an educational reformer now, or I'll just be a rake now, or you know, he just lands on these things, he pursues them for a little while, and then he has this kind of creeping sense of self-doubt. It's obviously, it's it's usually of a kind of moralistic character, And and the reason I say this is because if you compare him to other figures in... In, in Russian fiction of the day, uh, you see a lot of people like the nihilists. Now, see, these are people who are arrogant but don't have any self-doubt. Mm. They just think what they're doing is right, and they're done. They've found it. Tulsa never finds it. I mean, he's
1: always yeah, oh, searching, even, at, yeah. even his last year, which is rather sort of touching in a way, isn't it? Um, I think I think you're, you're, you're right there. Uh, I think, yeah, it is a sort of continual search.
0: Yeah and it's funny i, I think that uh, we'll talk about his later life when he becomes kind of a mystic or i don't know how to characterize it but i think many people think of this as the kind of uh you know the his his finally he's reached his destination i think if he would have lived 5 more years he would have done something else yeah <laughs> I, I think it's,
1: um, i think it's funny too because um he i think he he had to sort of sense deep down i mean it was his conscience and i think conscience is really yeah. key to it isn't it mm-hmm. uh his conscience told him something quite clear from a quite early point, I think. But he realised deep down also that to follow it would mean really swimming against the tide and going against the grain of everything that he'd been brought up in. Mm. You know, he, he was someone who was who was brought up um, seeing serfdom as something natural, yeah. and so it took an enormous amount of courage to actually follow his convictions because uh, mm-hmm. he didn't need to. I mean, you know, he was someone who could have just led the, um, the life of a krepostnik, you know, the, yep. these dreadful people who, who actually liked the idea of owning human beings right, <laughs> and right. didn't want to let it go. And, of course, you know, it was bound to lead to revolution in the end. Um, you know,
0: or he could have become a socialist or a communist or he could have entered go- government. I mean, there were lots of things. He, he could have become reactionary. But he never took a stand, really. He just wasn't much of a joiner.
1: He was also far too anarchic, really, to become a member of any kind of political party because the party would have had to revolve around him. And, you know, he is an incredible Mm -hmm. narcissist. You can't get around that.
0: (laughs) No, he was definitely his own favorite subject. But anyway, let's talk a little bit about uh, War and Peace and then the other big one, Anna Karenina. Um, How did he he come to write these books? Why did he write these books? (coughs) Well... I'm particularly interested in Anna Karenina actually because it looks a lot like another book that was written by a French author. But anyway,
1: at least we do know, you know, the story of what he, he was really interested in the Decembrist generation. People who had after eighteen twelve the officers of the Russian army had gone to Paris and seen how the rest of Europe operated and then returned to Russia. Mm-hmm. and had the scales fall from their eyes. And they'd staged this disastrous uh, attempt at a revolution in 1825. And a lot of them were executed, and those who weren't were packed off to Siberia. And they were given amnesty in the late 1850s under the new Tsar, Alexander II, who is known as the Reforming Tsar because he had no option but to introduce reform. Um, his father, Nicholas I, had been deeply repressive and reactionary precisely because of the Decemberist uprising, and particularly towards the end of his reign because of the 1848 revolutions mm-hmm. in Europe. And so we get um, this. He, he was t- terribly sort of rigid, and you know, it was all about um, army discipline for him. And, and yet the army was in dire need of modernization and, and tolstoy was um was absolutely appalled actually by by the morale of the you know the the average troops and had actually tried to start a sort of a military journal mm-hmm. where you would try and sort of raise that morale and you know they, there was no there were no communications in russia there were there was there was barely any railway and that was critical in a, in a war that you're fighting at the other end of your empire so when Alexander Second um, became Tsar in 1855, he was, he was bound to introduce reform. And one of the reformers was to ease censorship and to give amnesty to the Decembrists. And so Tolstoy wanted to write about this generation. And one of the Decembrists who was amnestied was actually a distant relative of his, one of, one of the Volkonskys. And he found, though, that when he started looking into it, that he needed to go back in time to explain it. And he found himself going right back to 1812 and then even further back in time to 185, and that's when uh, the novel starts. So it becomes this sort of enormous, um, great sort of hist- historical survey of of Russia during during this period. And of course he was going to carry it on to the 1850s, and that just never happened. Uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So, but okay, you, you just called it a novel, and this is something I learned from your book that I didn't know, and I was kind of amazed by. And it also speaks to his kind of arrogant anarchism. He didn't think it was a novel.
1: Well, no, he didn't actually. <laughs> <laughs> I was being interviewed by someone at a literary festival recently. Said, oh, well, you only, just, you only you only give him one chapter as a novelist, and and I wanted to say, well, actually, you know, <laughs> he, he only regarded Danica Karenina as a novel, okay. and and I and I actually, you know, I buy his views because the Russians they were starting their creative traditions much much later than in the rest of Europe. You know, the art um, started it really only in the 18th century in the sort of secular sense uh, and the first novels appear in the 19th century and so when the Russians start attempting to write novels they do it differently, they don't want to just follow the western example um, and you you can only admire that really, so you know Pushkin's Eugene and Yegin is a novel in verse yeah. and Gorgel's uh, Dead Souls is subtitled a poema, you know a long yeah. poem and Lermontov's Hero of Our Time is a set of sh- short stories so uh and you can't really describe War and Peace as a novel in the conventional European sense it, it's bigger than that isn't mm-hmm. it um it and is. Dostoevsky's novels aren't really novels either in and that's that you know they're, they're just more they just absorb more sort of ex- existential d- debate really so I think um I think that's fair enough
0: I think uh, if they were submitted to a literary agent today they would be rejected summarily
1: <laughs> yeah I think probably would actually yeah. <laughs> I don't
0: have any doubt about it, but you know it's interesting to think about that time in Russian literature in which genres hadn't particularly taken hold i mean and there was a similar time in in European history, obviously I'm thinking of uh, Tristram Shandy, I don't know if you've read it recently, but you read that book. This one is the so-called first you, you novels. It's
1: on Tolstoy, of course. What? Well, Lawrence Sturm is hugely interesting. Oh, really? Yeah, that's right.
0: That's right. If you, if you read Tristram Shandy, you, what you realize is that pretty much everything about every novel that's ever written is anticipated in it. There's somewhere yeah. in it where there is everything. There is postmodernism in it. Like yeah. blank pages and just weird stuff. Weird mm-hmm. stuff that you would never, you know, multiple voices. And it's just odd. The book is odd. Because it isn't a genre, it's, uh, it's a kind of sui generis at the time. And I,
1: yeah, well, I think, I think that, that term uh, applies to all of the great Russian masterpieces in, in prose. And, you know, for the Russians in particular, it was a way of defining themselves <laughs> in, in distinction to Western Europe. And you see the same thing in music. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, with Mussorgsky writing Boris Gudunov in the, in the 1860s. I'm
0: just thinking about a novel in verse. Every time I think of that, I'm just, it's just an amazing idea. <laughs> inverse. Uh, yeah. yeah, so okay, so that's War and Peace. How did he uh, come to write um, uh, Anna Karenina, the, the, the well, pot, the,
1: the pot yeah. boiler? Yes. He finishes War and Peace in the late 1860s and he has a sort of massive um, depression after that. I mean, you would, wouldn't you? You yeah, <laughs> would. He finished this enormous, enormous novel uh, or, well, well, literary work. I mean, yeah, whatever it is. And in the Years following War and Peace, what I found really extraordinary is that he goes from this sort of Homeric epic literally to the letters of the alphabet because Mm. he finds his conscience stirring again and he finds himself wanting to go back to education. And for me, this was one of the most important uh, sections of his of his life, he he puts together an ABC book, not just for peasants, but for all Russian children. And again, it's you know it's a sort of wayward enterprise because he doesn't want to follow the Ministry of Education's rules for education, and they don't really accept his way of doing things. Although he does for once in his life, actually submits to criticism and he revises this ABC book and it becomes very popular. So, you know, millions and millions of copies were sold. But he spends the early years of the 1870s deeply immersed in the Russian language. And there's something rather wonderful about this. So he writes little stories for children to learn the alphabet by. I mean, and he, and he begins, you know, with, with with simple letters. I mean, he really does uh, go right back to basics. And he gets his wife, Sonia, in on the act too. So she writes some of the little stories too. And he retranslates Aesop's fables. So he's taught himself Greek, you know, in a couple of months. And he's, he's deeply immersed in all kinds of forms of of Russian language because he wants to instill in his new readers a love for their own language and That's something very, very admirable and touching, I think, because he's looking at the lives of saints. He's looking at collections of sacred writings. He's looking at uh, the lives of the bogatheers, these these Mm -hmm. medieval warriors. And it's, of course, it is marvellous material for, for, for young Russian kids. And he also puts in little stories about science, too. So it's this massive compendium of materials, which he has huge faith in uh, and he actually tries to get it accepted um, officially and he's done two trips to Europe by this time and neither of them really persuade him that he wants to spend much more time in Europe and so that is it that's for him um, his travel abroad and he's in his second trip to Europe and he's away for about a year spent most of his time visiting primary schools and seeing how the children are taught so it's not um something he's just dreamt up of nothing he's done a lot of study of pedagogical materials that he's gathered up and brought back to russia but he wants to found an educational system that is appropriate in russia and is not one that simply takes the methodologies from say germany which Mm. was the case in the 1870s so he's very very much entranced with all of this um in the early 1870s but he's also got this impulse to want to write another book and his wife's very keen for him to write another book because she associates their domestic stability and happiness with him writing and she feels involved because she's writing out fair copies of his manuscripts Mm -hmm. and obviously she likes the idea of being the wife of a famous writer and uh that's for her, you know, that's the sort of deepest fulfillment she can find. And he has this idea of writing a novel this time about contemporary life rather than looking back to the past. And unfortunately, when Anna Karenina gets started in 1873, he is not such a happy man. Um, and his marriage is already beginning to show some signs of strain. And this novel is about the idea of family life Mm -hmm. and about modern family life and how difficult it is. And all around him, there are Russians who are encountering marital crisis and getting divorced. Mm -hmm. And I found it very interesting to come across a remarkable letter that his sister Masha wrote to him around this time in which she talks about being an Anna Karenina herself because she Mm. had um, split up from her husband and was going to go through a divorce. In fact, she really needed her brother to help. And, uh, you know, to, to have a divorce in Russia was very difficult until... The 1870s and 1880s, uh, it was something which brought great shame on you, and it was horrifying for his sister. Unfortunately, she um, was able to ha- not have to go through with it because her husband died, uh, but Tolstoy did start. Doing all the necessary preliminary work, which actually he you know he brings into Anna Karelina because Karenin has to go and consult a lawyer at one point. So he's very much writing about things that are going on around him, and he's also, of course, reflecting his own ideals for family life and the realities of family life as he's experienced it um, uh, in, in at close quarters. So the novel is something that Takes up his attention and he's sort of very inspired, but he keeps um, starting new drafts um, and takes, takes him about 15 goes before he can really get into it. And actually, he's very quickly tires of the idea of writing about an adulterous female. And it's really only when he brings in the character of Levin, who is this Russian landowner, very much after his own heart, who's deeply interested in working on the land and working with the peasants um that's when he really is able to write it but it's actually a sort of quirk really that he got it finished because it's um it's was a novel which took him four years to complete. He finished it in 1877 and he actually bought some land and needed some money. And I think actually it was purely the financial consideration that caused him in the end to sign up with his old editor, Mikhail Katkov, at the Russian Messenger, this monthly journal. Um, and so he was then sort of tied to writing it. But even then he found it very, very difficult to apply himself. And so Russian readers were sort of, you know, following this gripping story and would suddenly find that, you know, they'd have to wait several months for the next installment. Uh, And Dostoevsky was much more uh, orderly from that point of view, because, you know, he was also publishing in these monthly journals and he sort of kept a schedule, whereas Tolstoy didn't. And it was a real effort for him to finish. And by the end of it, he really, you know, was sick of it. And Soon afterwards, you know, he turned his back on the idea of writing fiction for the pampered upper classes and wanted to devote himself and all his energies to to the poor.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's, let's come to that in just a second. We have to hurry along here. But I, I've always wanted to ask this question. What is the relationship between Anna Karenina and Madame Bovary? They are very similar stories.
1: Well... I, I, I don't know. Maybe they're
0: I, not similar. I just maybe they, just making are, that up. They are
1: not. I mean, you know, obviously Tolstoy was aware of of Flaubert um, and aware of all the other novels of adultery, but really, Anna Karenina is just much more than Madame Bovary, isn't it? <laughs> yeah,
0: I think. Yeah, I think scholars I mean, of Madame Bovary would say the opposite, but I, I agree with you.
1: But, but Tolstoy, you know, that, Tolstoy, you know if, if he was going to take something on, he was going to make sure that no, he really right. did it properly. Yeah. Yeah, um,
0: he was a closer, as we say. He was going yeah, to close it. Yeah, he was it. a closer. Yeah. Exactly. yeah, he was a closer. He was going to close it. And, okay, so let's move on then. Uh, we kind of have to hurry along because I want to give you a chance to talk about what you're working on now. Uh, I want to hear about Tolstoy's, uh, can we call it a spiritual crisis? What is it exactly? What happens in the 1880s, isn't it?
1: Well, yes, it's right at the end of Anna Karenina and he, for a while, becomes very devout and follows all the the fasts of the Russian Orthodox Church, goes to church regularly, goes to the Optina Monastery, and then almost sort of on a whim again, turns his back on the Orthodox Church. And I, I guess it is a kind of spiritual crisis because he goes from feeling you know he's part of the orthodox community one day to the next being virulently against it and he spent the next 30 years of his life attacking it ceaselessly in ever more vigorous terms so Mm -hmm. yes it is a kind of spiritual crisis but it's when he really wakes up i suppose and starts really living according to the dictates of his conscience and it provokes a lot of problems because it means a break with his former life, which is not easy to do, given that he's got a large brood of children. Mm -hmm. And a wife who is half his age, whom he's sort of basically brought up, um, you know, after his own uh, ideas, and, you know, he suddenly expects her to sort of go along with it too. And, you know, she had a family to feed, to educate. And uh, I think you can be sympathetic that uh, she was quite happy with her life as it was. Didn't really see why she should suddenly dress like a peasant and go and live in a hut and Mm -hmm. dispense with money and all forms of private property. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Where did he get the idea to do this? I mean, was it just a Tolstoyan version of monastic life or what? What? What impelled him to do, what was the model that he drew on? He said, well, well
1: he, he, he wanted to have, he wanted to, um, he wanted there to, to be God in his life. And what he saw was that the peasants seemed to have a spiritual life that was much richer than the people of his class. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, something something you can see in in the fiction, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. in in works like War and Peace, you've got that character Platon Karataev, who in a way is sort of the hero of the book because he's the one who who has all the wisdom to impart. Um, but, the Tolstoy, the the church was a very hypocritical institution. It was full of mumbo jumbo that the peasants could understand. Mm-hmm. He sought to try and. Uh, refashion Christianity in a way that was a practical guide for everyday life and that meant basically throwing out all the metaphysics, all the miracles of the Bible and he produced his own improved version of the Gospels in which (laughs) Jesus Jesus Christ is a a kind of sectarian figure um, after his own uh, heart really and the the one thing you you really need to understand uh, in order to get a an idea of what Tolstoy is doing here is that you know the church had been made into a department of state by Peter the Great back in uh, in the early eighteenth century and it was run by a layperson and it had lost its autonomy and also its moral authority because it was forced to support the government in whatever policies it it prosecuted and Quite often, of course, that involved supporting Russia when it went to war. Mm-hmm. And Tolstoy quite reasonably pointed out that, you know, what was a Christian church doing actually sanctioning violence? Um, because it's a good point.
0: It's still it a good, good point.
1: point. Uh, so he's not, he's not necessarily attacking Christianity, although there's a lot that doesn't meet his approval uh, in terms of the the miracle side of it but it's it's more the institution uh, specifically the Russian Orthodox Church as a state institution because it is so sort of hitched up with the government. I mean it's been very interesting in the last few weeks to see the Church of England's stance with regard to the anti-capitalism protesters who are camped out outside St Paul's, because mm-hmm. to begin with they were sort of um, trying to sort of get them to, to move on, but now they're sort of beginning to side with them and. Mm. I, I can't help but think of Tolstoy at the moment because he, you know, all his um, energies were devoted to sort of waging this war against capitalism, really. No, I mean, you know, no. on the behalf of the poor, and he, he sort of got there way before anyone else. You know, vegetarianism, animal rights, all of that. Uh, he was he was waging this campaign in the in the last years of the 19th century.
0: Mm. I don't know. Sometimes I think that these things, these incredible transformations that uh, public figures go through usually when they adopt a kind of ascetic stance, that they're a kind of cry for attention. I could be wrong about that, but, you know, they're just very showy. There's nothing subtle about them. But anyway, let's leave that aside. That's just my own well, story. Well, I think, I,
1: think I, I should just pick on that. I mean, yeah. yes, yeah, Tolstoy was always going on about wanting to become a kind of, you know, wanderer, like the, the millions right. of pilgrims yeah. and uh-huh. have nothing but the clothes on his back. Right. However, he he liked the attention because he, he was not yeah very self absorbed man and oh, yeah. no, he, he, he liked being photographed i no, mean he, he hated modern technology but he liked he yeah. liked to be in front right, of a lens yeah.
0: and that's kind very,
1: of it's very vain I, I
0: find that kind of charming really i honestly i i, I do you know the, these contradictions in his so wait i uh, we we've used up a lot of time here but i still want to go on um he becomes the leader of a uh what shall we call it the tolstoyans a, a, a cult what is it
1: well, the, the Orthodox Church defined Tolstoyanism as a cult in 1897 and as a pernicious cult too, because unlike a lot of the sects in Russia, it appealed both to the intelligentsia and to the peasantry. So that was for them very, very dangerous. Yeah. But it really wasn't a, a, a cult because Tolstoy was such an anarchist that in the idea of making it in any form an institution was never part of the uh, the plan mm-hmm. so um, he inevitably attracted followers who were also very disenchanted with you know modern life with the with the church because it was so sort of you know distant from their their own spiritual needs but it wasn't really ever um, a sort of sectarian religion or anything or even a cult mm-hmm. I, I don't think so. it was far too disparate
0: we right, have these people coming to yasnopalyana and basically I don't know what they were doing, writing down everything he said. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I'm thinking because- of Muhammad. That's what happened to Muhammad. You know, he wanted to run people around everything he said.
1: He did He did become, yes, There's there's sort of, you know, someone whom... People gravitated. I mean, thousands of people came to consult him on all kinds of different things, and uh, he became seen as, the, you know, like a, an elder in a monastery. Yeah. I mean, that—that's that the sort of irony. He was sort of turning back his back on all these Orthodox institutions, and yet actually, he was still sort of living the life of um, spiritual people from from that from that faith.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, how, how does his life end? What what happens to him?
1: Well, he has an ending which uh was actually made a big sort of media event uh nineteen ten. He finally decides to leave Yasna palyana and by that stage his his biggest disciple Vladimir Chekhov is warring with his wife Sonia and it's become very very unpleasant. Um so Chekhov wants all of Tolstoy's writings and all of his diaries. And Sonia feels, you know, everything is encroaching on her private life and she feels she's lost her husband. So Tolstoy actually leaves. And I think really what it was, was this sort of ridiculous desire, uh, unrealistic desire to sort of lead the life of a, you know, a religious pilgrim um, wandering from place to place. But he was too famous for that to happen and of course people discovered where he was pretty soon and he got on a train again and you know a lot of people will have seen the last station um Mm -hmm. which is a kind of rendition of his last uh, (laughs) last days and weeks um you know he died in winter he didn't die in the summer, like in the film, and uh, it's um, it, it's it's not terribly accurate uh, portrayal of, of Tolstoy's life. Uh, so he dies in you know in this railway station, and because he's so famous around the world at this point, he gets an awful lot of media attention, and the pate cameras are beginning yeah. to whirl. Uh, at this stage, so there are journalists from not just from Russia, but from from you know from the United States, from from England, from France, uh, flocking to this remote little uh, village, and uh, it um, comes to an end when. Tolstoy dies uh, finally Mm -hmm. Uh, and he's given the first civil burial in Russia because of course he's been excommunicated by the church Mm -hmm. uh, at this point and uh, the Russian government is really caught on the back foot because they've spent 30 years trying to shut him up with very little success (laughs) and they find at his death that of course you know the rest of the world is lamenting the passing of this great writer and this great spiritual leader. And they can't be seen to be joining in with that too much. Uh, and they're terrified that the demonstrations that break out and the strikes uh, that, that coincide with the death are going to become widespread. And, you know, it's a sort of step on the stone, on the, on the path to revolution.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, since we're talking about revolution and what will come, you have this very interesting section at the end of the book where you talk about the reception and use of Tolstoy uh, by the Soviet authorities. Can you say just a few words about that? He's a kind of a tough guy to deal with because he's all over the place, but how did they do it?
1: Well, he'd spent, you know, decades trying to bring down the Tsarist government. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people felt after 1917 that he'd helped to bring about the Bolshevik revolution, except that at the core of his philosophy was um, a rejection of violence of any kind. Yeah, there's so that part. It, So that that explains partly why, again, today, Russians feel a little bit sort of uneasy about him. So he was at the same time someone who'd attacked the Tsarist regime. So he was also, you know, one of the world's greatest writers. So 1928 was the centenary of his birth, and they launched this huge edition of his complete collective works that Lenin um, had pledged his support for. He said that all of Tolstoy, you know, must be published. And they did keep to it, more or less. So the odd thing, of course, is, though, that they didn't really want to have to deal with his spiritual legacy. Mm-hmm. And what they ended up promoting was Tolstoy the patriotic writer. It was a very, very one-sided view. And all of his religious writings, I mean, there are, you know, millions of words um, that he wrote, he, he wrote and the end of his life when he was not writing very much fiction, they appeared once in the collected works in a print run of about 5,000, which is tiny yeah. for, for the Soviet Union. Soviet and, yeah. they, and they were never published again. And one of the most important books about Tolstoy was a by a Russian dissident called Mark Popovsky, who ended up writing this book in the uh, Kennan Institute Institute in Washington. And he like most Soviet um, members of the intelligentsia had grown up thinking of Tolstoy in terms in the terms that the Soviet establishment wanted him to see him as in, you know, this patriotic writer and had no idea. That there were any Tolstoyans, that the that Tolstoy had this whole sort of other spiritual side to him, and it was a revelation to him. And he discovered that some of these Tolstoyans had stubbornly stuck to their beliefs and wanted to live this sort of simple life on the on the soil, uh, doing manual labour. You know, all the way up until the 1930s, and even when these communists had to sort of flee to Siberia and you know, they, they'd been sort of um, uh, liquidated by by Stalin, uh, and even. after the members of these communes had, you know, returned from being in the camps, they still stuck to their beliefs. And he found uh, a really fascinating story to tell. And he published this book in 1983. So it's a very important chapter in Tolstoy's biography. You know, he might be dead, but, you know, his his legacy lives on. And it's an important chapter to take account of when we consider how little the Russian government wanted to mark the event of the centenary of his death mm-hmm. last year. Unlike all the other countries around the world, which sort of did quite a lot, yeah. there was very little in Russia because, you know, we've got in Putin a, um, someone who has this, you know, this macho um, that's paraded. You know, you see him <laughs> shooting yes. tigers or whatever. Right,
0: yeah, wrestling and, bears and, and swimming sharks. And I don't and know what the else. The church,
1: he does. once again, of course, is very close to the government. Um, and they refuse to reconsider their excommunication because they say he's got to repent. So <laughs> I don't know right. how he's yeah, going to come back to life to do that. It's um, tough. Yeah,
0: it's very that's tough. tough. That's very tough. So before we talk about Anakaran, a final trick question. You don't have to answer it if you don't want. Is there any novelist around today that is close to his equal? Is there, any, is there anybody who should read really like, this is the person, she's it? You don't have to answer that question.
1: Um, I, I don't know of any writer yeah. who makes the grade. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't know either. I, I don't, I'm not really a big novel reader, but I just thought maybe you were thinking of somebody. But if you're not, you're not. So
1: I find it quite hard to read novels actually after reading all the great, great Russian. Yeah, ones.
0: no, it's, it's it's a tough. It's true. It's a mm-hmm. tough thing. Um, so uh, I usually ask people at the end of these interviews what they're working on now. But I know what you're working on now, and it is a translation. You have told us it is a translation of Anna Karenina. Maybe you could say a few words about that.
1: Well, I'm going to be replacing the Elmer Maud translation, which has been in print with Oxford Wilds Classics for about 100 years now. And that's a tall order because it's a very, very good translation. It's a sort of benchmark, really, for Anna Kiranina. But it does need updating a bit. And I... Really relished the thought of working on a translation of one of Tolstoy's works as well as writing his biography. I think it's a sort of symbiotic um, project because they both sort of feed into each other. And, you know, it's not a, it's not probably a coincidence that when I was writing about Chekhov, I started writing very short sentences. And when, you know, I've been writing <laughs> much more involved and it's, it's much more difficult to grapple with. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Know, they're completely different writers. But actually, you know, engaging with a writer's creative process in a very intimate way, which you do when you're a translator. And, you know, it's every single little piece of syntax, mm-hmm. every single word, every single comma. For me, um, being perfectionist which is why I'm taking <laughs> such a long time with it. Um, it's, it really does... Inform how you approach structuring their life. So, my biographies of Chekhov and Tolstoy are totally different. And for me, what sort of sprang out of the page when I was translating Chekhov, because I've done these translations of some of his his greatest stories, was that he, you know, he's a sort of landscape painter in words. And I hadn't quite sort of grasped how important that was in in his uh, in his life and in his fiction. And so. I actually structured my biography of, of Chekhov through um, his relationship with place rather than re- relationship with people because he was someone who, you know, notoriously was very, very uh, private and, you know, he was difficult to, 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 to get um, close to. And somehow I found that he was much more open when he was writing about, about landscape. Uh, but with Tolstoy, I think what guided me there, I mean, what what Tolstoy championed as a writer was these long long novels but they're made up of little chapters and each little chapter has a story and I really wanted in this life of Tolstoy which is a huge life and uh, difficult to to grasp is to sort of somehow have an idea of a story in each chapter and I've called it you know Tolstoy a Russian life because I think he was the most Russian of all Russians and I think because he one of the qualities of of, of Russian-ness is this sort of, you know, maximalism, this sort of going Mm -hmm. to to town. And I think he lived many, many lives. Mm -hmm. He he was someone who was extraordinarily sensitive. So he was someone who was a kind of Tsar in his own land, and he was also a peasant, you know, he he sort of lived these extremes. So I've um, been very interested also uh, to come to the translation of Anna Karenina now, Knowing a little bit more about his his life, mm-hmm. and there's one um, particular point which I'd, I'd quite like to share. Please do. Part two, chapter twelve.
0: Um, I'm sure everybody remembers it.
1: Well, <laughs> it's, when, it's when Levin's gone back to his country estate after being spurned by Kitty. Uh, it's you know fairly early on in the novel, and. He's pretty down in the dumps because he's been rejected. Yeah. And yet spring suddenly happens. And spring is a really wonderful thing in Russia. And Tolstoy describes beautifully you know, everything coming to life. And then he's got this one sentence about bees, which really intrigued me. And it's um, this is half a sentence, actually. <laughs> And what I've discovered is that every translator has come up with something different for this um, part of the sentence. And and I knew that in this sentence there were two words which sort of make sense, but aren't words that really have traditional meanings. Um, And it's about bees and it's about willow, which is flecked with golden light. Um, but what is the bee doing? It's it's in the singular in Russian. Uh, and you've got this verb which relates to the word or to put out. And then which is a uh, participle um, implying flying around, mm-hmm. and <laughs> it's it's it was clear to me that these weren't these were sort of particular words, and because I knew that Tolstoy had been this sort of manic beekeeper at some point in the early years of his marriage, I started looking up beekeeping terminology, and to you know, <laughs> the wonders of the internet, you can <laughs> yeah. find glossaries of nineteenth-century <laughs> beekeeping terminology uh-huh. on the internet. And sure enough, these two words actually refer to specific things huh. in keeping bees. So yeah. I'd, I'd like to read to you the translations um, as, they, as they differ. Because yeah, <laughs> yeah, do, please. I'm interested. Yeah. or so, Maud, we've got, And among golden catkins and on the willow branches, the bees began to hum. Rosemary Edmonds, who is translating for Penguin in the middle of the 20th century, she's got, The honeybee hummed among the golden catkins of the willow. And then you've got Paveer and Volokhonsky, who've done the new translation for Penguin, and they've got, and on the willow, all sprinkled with golden catkins, the flitting newly hatched bee buzzed. Then you've got Kirill Zinoviev, who did a very good translation um, that was published recently. You've got an old bee pushed out of its hive, buzzed in the gold-flat willow. So you've got a, a newly hatched bee and an old bee and a honeybee. <laughs> with Elma Mord, you've got bees in the Bees, pool.
0: yeah, you've got multiple and
1: bees. What I, what I discovered from my research was, and you know, it, it, this is why translation takes a long time, that Vrstavlanaya refers to the bees hive having been moved to a new place for the summer months oh. so they're in a one place in the winter and then the hives get yeah. moved and then oblitavshays refers to the bees making their first um spring flight mm-hmm. once their hive has been moved so quite how you render that in english i mean i, I don't want to read my draft yet because i need to do some more work on oh come
0: on it.
1: well i I've, it's a bit cumbersome i've got a bee on its first spring flight from its new summer home started buzzing about the gold flat willows
0: so that sounds a lot more natural to me I...
1: well it's certainly not a newly hatched bee and it's yeah, a I mean, old it sounds, bee. Yeah. and then and then i have to um pay tribute to uh the um conference i went to last year in in italy because the um, this is something I brought up with um, one of the American Slavists at the conference, Tom Newlin, and he's actually written an article about bees in Tolstoy. Oh, really? I discovered when I because I thought, well, I'm sure I'm sure I'm right about this, but there was something that I wasn't quite sure about, and that was to do with the fact that you know, Tolstoy uses p'chala in the singular, bee uh-huh. in the singular, and Tom confirmed that actually. It's often used in the nineteenth century to mean bees. And of course mm-hmm. Tom Story would not want to be writing about one bee, would right. he? No. So I think um
0: sort of collective noun.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm going to change my single bee to bees. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thanks. Thanks to him, and yeah. that, and it's a it's a wonderful collaborative activity translation. It's very nice when when you can sort of consult people, and um, you know it's, it's it's sort of like doing puzzles. I suppose you you can finally figure things yeah. out.
0: Well, I, I admire very much your ambition and skill in doing this. I, I can only imagine that it is a is a daunting project to be sure, and uh, it it is one that. Um, I'm sure it's very rewarding when you're done,
1: it's both, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's just a bit like, just a bit like doing one puzzle after the other. Yeah, you know. yeah. well, time thinking about it, and you get there in the end.
0: Right. Well, anyway, I want to thank you very much uh, for your time today. We've been talking to uh, Rosamund Bartlett about her wonderful new book, Tolstoy, A Russian Life. Uh, Rosamund, thanks very much for being on the show.
1: Thanks, Marshall. All right.
0: Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Rosamund Bartlett, the author of Tolstoy, A Russian Life. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History, and I hope you have a great week.